Welcome to Syndicated Thursday on HPR. Today we present a little bit of Python. Welcome to a little bit of Python episode 13. I am Steve Holden. Who are you guys? I'm Andrew Cushling. I'm Brett Cannon. And I'm Jesse Noller. So probably the piece of news we'd like to start with this week is the forthcoming arrival of 2.7 Beta 1, right? 2.7 is, I think, shaping up nicely. To my regret, I didn't manage to finish the What's New in Python 2.7 article in time. <sighs> I, I originally aimed to have it done for Beta 1, but missed that because it's, it's U.S. tax season and I had other things going on. So my new target is going to be finishing it for beta 2, which it will be in another month sometime in May. But it certainly makes my job easier because now the pace of change will be slowing down a lot. Certainly should, yes. Uh, there have already been refusals to add new features to the uh, the release now that we're in beta. I think uh, Benjamin, the release manager, is being pretty sticky about... Uh... Oh, is Benjamin managing 2.7 or is it Barry? It's Benjamin. Yeah, he's, I think, being suitably sticky about not just uh, adding any old feature to the to the release once we get into beta, and I think that's a good thing. Yes, I think multiprocessing taught us all a lesson on that one. Wouldn't you say, Jesse? Yeah, that, that oh, yes. Guy. Multiprocessing taught us all a valuable lesson about scrolling features in at the very, very last moment, which is you don't do it. I seem to remember being against it, but I was a voice in the wilderness at the time. Another new feature was accepted for Python 3.2 this week. PEP 3147, written by Barry Warsaw, uh, defines a new directory layout for storing PYC files. Does someone want to talk about that, or should I continue? Well, you can by all means continue, but maybe I could summarize, uh, first of all, by saying that the, the, the essence of the proposal is that where possible, Python is going to now, instead of storing the .pyc files in the same directory as the source, it's going to create a Dunder PyCache directory in the same directory as the source. And the .pyc files that will be created in that directory include versioning information, which will mean that for the first time, it'll be possible for multiple versions of Python to share the same source tree and have their different respective bytecode files uh, filed neatly alongside, but not directly next to the source. Is that a fair summary? Yes. Oh, sorry. That's okay. I don't mind two people agreeing with me. It's a bit unusual to have any at all, but there you go. So, right, yes, please do uh, feel free to elaborate, Andrew, since you've been uh, more involved with it than I have. The motivation for this 
comes from the Linux distributions, where you often want to install something that's pure Python code that would be compatible with with pretty much any reasonably recent version of of Python 2.5 or 2.6 uh, or even 3x. For a Linux distribution, it's very hard to actually express the dependency upon Python in the dependency rules for the package. And so the aim is to share these directories across implementations. What will happen is Python 3.2 will write its PYCs in this directory, and the file name will include Python 3.2, or CPython 3.2. And Jython could write its own files, which contain something like Jython 2.6.class as the file name. And eventually, probably Unladen Swallow will be writing its LLVM intermediate bytecode files and, and other things in there. And all this stuff can go in the cache directory and leave the source directory pristine. I think yeah, that's that it. sounds like a very good idea. As the situation gets more and more complex, it would be impossible to find your .py files amongst all of the .classes and heaven knows what else. Yeah, it's definitely going to be a nice organizational boost as a side effect of all this, since you're not going to have you're not going to double the number of files you have by any with PYC files next to all your source files. You're just going to have that one little directory now, and everything else just gets shoved into there, out of out of out of mind and just out of the way. And raise your hand if you've ever wanted to clear out all your PYCs and then accidentally deleted all your Python files because you're just from muscle memory, typed star.py, enter. Me. Me too. <laughs> in fact, I, I would I, never I, admit I, making such a silly mistake, even I think though I've I actually, have probably made it several times. I think I've done it multiple times in the same day, actually, Andrew. <laughs> well, actually, speaking of accidentally deleting source with your bytecode, this also will fix the problem of people ex- deleting source on purpose but not deleting the bytecode. I'm sure we've all had situations where we've deleted an old file but still had it getting imported because the old PYC was left in the same directory. This will actually change that such that if you have source, it will then go into the Dunder PYC uh, PyCache directory to get at the bytecode. But if there's no source, there is no search into that directory. So ditching a, a source file will not and it will not allow that directories PYC to be actually pulled in. So no more worrying about moving files and having some old module suddenly reappear out of thin air. Yeah, I remember that Django at one stage was having some real problems because they weren't overwriting .PYC files that were left. Uh, I think the position there was that a, a new installation would come along and they'd overwrite one of the .py files, but they didn't specifically as part of their install procedure remove PYCs which were therefore newer than the recently installed files, which came in with the dates that they had on the tar file. So basically, if if you compile, if if you run an old version of Django later than the release date of a newer version, when you updated it, you still had kept your old .pyc files in certain cases, and that led to a lot of a lot of confusion for beginners at one stage. I'm not quite sure whether they've well, I know they've they've taken steps to avoid those problems now, but. It does just go to show that there are pitfalls for the unwary, and I think we can all agree that the fewer such pitfalls exist, the better a language Python yes. is going to be. Mm-hmm. Well, there's there's also there's also an aspect of this that before we started recording, uh, 
Brett and I were talking about too, which is one of the bones of contention with this proposal was the fact that there's quite a few of us, myself included, who are frequently in the position of having to ship sourceless distributions. That is to say, um, typically as part of your build process, you actually call compile or compile all on your Python modules, and then you strip out the .pys and ship to the customer only the .pyc files. And so part of the PEP process, a lot of us discussed this, and there's a lot of back and forth as to, you know, should we support this, should we not support this? The answer is that this PEP is going to continue to support that mechanism outside of the uh, Dunder PyCache directory. Um, and so basically if there's a PYC, if there's a PYC file that is not in the cache directory, it will load that if the matching.py file does not exist. If there's a PYC file inside of the PyCache directory, but foo.py doesn't exist, let's say, then an import error will be raised. So there's kind of a middle ground with the support for sourceless distributions. Shall we move on to uh, Summer of Code? That would be a good idea, because I know Ark Riley has been working very, very hard indeed, and I'm not quite sure exactly where we're up to, but last time I exchanged email with Ark, he said that we had some very, very good projects this year. I do know that he's trying to emphasize projects which will move people towards Python 3 this year, which I think is a good thing. Yep, and actually, as of this morning, I just signed up to be a mentor for GSOC. So I'm actually filtering through all the proposals today. Cool, and that's something that anybody's entitled to do. Um, I don't know how well supplied with mentors we are this year, but it's certainly true that um, every project needs an experienced programmer or you know, somebody experienced to, to help the student through the project. And it's a fairly significant task. I mean, the students are actually doing, what, roughly $5,000 worth of work. Uh, so it's it's a significant number of weeks work over over the summer. And if you've if you've got if you see one of the projects that you feel you could mentor, um, then by all means feel free to to sign up and and offer to act as a mentor. We need more people involved with Summer of Code. And in fact, I think that Ark Riley uh, is actually going to be pushing the PSF to run similar projects without Google support as well, although heaven knows where we're going to get the money for it, but it's certainly something that I think would be worth funding. Yeah, so, I mean, it's looking at the proposals and everything else like that. I mean, I'm pretty sure they're still in need of mentors, so definitely anybody um, listening to this recording after we're done with this, um, reach out to Ark Riley and offer to help out. Um, From what I understand of the project, and this is my first time volunteering the mentor, um, really what it is is basically you are the point of contact as a mentor. You're the project manager. Ultimately, it's your job to stay on top of the student, make sure the deliverables are hit that are outlined in the proposal, um, type up summaries, basically coach them um, through basic project management and getting things done, but also serving to them as you know a code reviewer and also putting them in contact with the wider community so that they can get their patches accepted, uh, figure out how to become part of an open source project if this is the first time doing it. So really, it's it's great. It's a, it's a great project. This and uh, GHOP, which is the Google highly open, highly participation. open participation. Yeah. Basically, the, these are the things that have, I think existed when some of us were already in school. We may not have uh, spent our summers blowing things up and uh, generally terrorizing the rest of humanity. So, For listeners who are unfamiliar with 
the Summer of Code. Google Summer of Code, or GSOC, is a program aimed at college-level students through which the students can learn how to work on open source projects. Students write proposals describing what they want to work on. They want to add a module to Python or write a new program that does something. And students are paired with a mentor who is an existing, already experienced developer on a relevant project. The job of the mentor is to then help them work with the community and hopefully get their work accepted. Uh, GSOC actually pays the students. It, it pays them around four to $5,000 for three months' work over the summer. So this really replaces a summer job for the student and gives them an opportunity to learn open source and also to rack up some relevant experience if they're computer science students. Sure. And for, as far as the students are concerned, this would be something that would look good on their resume as well as getting them into the ways of, of open source and helping them to, to discover whether they actually like working in the open source environment. The final short item we have on our list this week is kind of an odd one. Uh, it's the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission possibly mandating the use of Python for expressing algorithms. So the Securities and Exchange Commission has the job of it's a government agency that has the job of monitoring the U.S. capital markets, stocks and bonds and that kind of thing. And you can tell how effective it is by the fact that we've just had to provide the U.S. banks with hundreds of billions of dollars to stop them from going bankrupt and thereby destroying the uh, entire banking system. Ouch! The SEC recently published some new draft rules for how asset-backed securities uh, need to to state their their regulatory compliance, and these draft rules, the new rules, require the firm managing the securities to post statements of their assets uh, encoded as XML, and it says in addition we are proposing to require along with the prospectus filing, the filing of a computer program of contractual cash flow provisions expressed as downloadable source code in Python. So, so their motivation is rather than an investor having to trust a rating agency to figure out how much a security would return, in theory, the investor could download the XML and download this Python program and run the Python program and get output that would be the predicted cash flow. I should point out to people who are interested in actually getting involved with this that the SEC proposal is actually 667 pages long. So the bits that start to discuss Python begin on page 205. But I think given the horrendous complications involved with these collateralized debt obligations, which are in fact the... The, the securities that, that did get all the banks into trouble. I think anything that makes this, this whole system more comprehensible and more accountable uh, can hardly fail to be a good thing. My initial reaction to it was, why use Python? Why not use S expressions or, you know, a simple sort of lispish subset? But I think if the motivation is that investors will download and run this code then maybe Python is a better choice. And S-expressions would be better if you wanted to analyze the algorithms in some way 
or you could automatically compile them into Java or C Sharp or whatever and embed them in an application. But it seems to me it would be a reasonable task for the SEC to produce maybe a small customized IDE for running these things. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering whether the Python Software Foundation needs to take out insurance against the uh, potential adverse effects of any bugs in the system that may result in financial losses. Doesn't the warranty, though, cover that it, it, it Python eats your fact, data yes. that's your problem? It does, in fact, yes. If, if you use Python for something that damages you, then uh, it's the obligation and the liability is, is on you. It doesn't pass to the Python Software Foundation at all. I was merely being a little flippant. Now, I have a question. Uh, I, I must, obviously, the SEC is not proposing Python for use out of the thin blue air. How much is Python actually used in the financial industry? I know of it being used in some firms to do, like, automatic day trading, but does anyone know exactly how much it's actually already being used out there? Well, when you say up there, do you mean New York or up in the financial world generally? I mean, I, I certainly Financials know generally, but I mean... Yeah. New York there is Financial many, Center for the US, so that do. There are many, many trading companies who are expressing their trading algorithms in Python now, and they are also using Python increasingly in their uh, back office systems, which handle the you know the, the 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 post the work that comes after the trades. So it is a very popular language, and it's getting more popular all the time. Then I suspect Andrew's thinking that the pragmatism outweighing everything is probably a good idea from their perspective, right? Because if all the traders already have some infrastructure for running Python and some expertise somewhere, whether it's in-house or a consultant, it makes it much easier for them to actually do this, probably less fighting for them to have to learn some new S-expression language. And also, pragmatically, any programmer could theoretically pick up the program and learn it instantly if they happen to know Python, well, a whole new sub-language, uh, S-expressions would have much more startup cost. I, I, th- I think in theory it's a cool idea. I think that I, I think that the choice of Python is relatively interesting, if, not, if nothing more for the fact that I too question how much Python is actually being used inside of these financial industry behemoths already. And I mean... Maybe they picked it just simply due to the fact that it's it's painful, if not – it's not impossible, but it's extremely painful to make code that is not understandable or easily to, easy to read, right? It, it's difficult to obfuscate most Python code. But in the same breath, I think that a more hands-off approach of just simply saying you, this needs to be in an open, easy-to-read interpreted language, I mean – Python, uh, Ruby to an extent. Um, there's plenty of other languages out there that could fit the bill for this. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of questioning why the SEC has chosen to almost mandate the use of Python. Um, well, let's just say it's an interesting piece of brand recognition for the Python language. It is, but at the same time, it's it's one of those things where, yeah, I, I'm of two minds. It's it's I'm one of those people who tends to say, you know, don't do something like this with a heavy hand and that's exactly what the SEC's done. But one thought it's I gotta had. pass first too, remember it is just a draft. So Yeah, it's a proposal. It's nothing more at the moment. Do the rules need to have language saying that numerical calculations will be done using the decimal module, not floating point? 
Well, it'd be interesting to see what happens with this, right? If this actually passes and suddenly all financial institutions must publish stuff in Python code, it'll be interesting to see what proposals or or such that come from the financial industry into Python itself. Do they come forward and say, we want to switch to turn all literal floating points into decimal automatically? Here, we'll fund speeding this up. It'll be <laughs> interesting to see if this does happen, what, what's going to happen in terms of well, the financial now, industry trying to throw money this way. This leads on to a very interesting question, which was actually raised at PyCon by a gentleman called Tim Cooper, who was recently elected to membership of the Python Software Foundation. And I think the best way to introduce this would simply be to run the short interview that Tim gave me at PyCon to explain one of the uh, activities he was hoping to get going while he was there. So, I'm at PyCon talking to Tim Cooper, who's one of the delegates who comes over from the UK. Pretty much every year, I think, Tim? Yeah, for the last five years. First time was in 2001. Okay, and you've just been asking me about whether particular types of presentation materials are available? Yeah, I'm very interested in doing presentations to people, customers typically with money, who can use Python, who do use Python, and for whom it might be an education to realise that actually... If they gave money back to this or other open source projects, yep. that money would be well used. And to give them the opportunity to provide uh, funds from their coffers, but I'm thinking banks, large pharmaceutical firms, for example, people where e each of us would have some natural connection because of our consulting or employment opportunities. Right. That's a very good idea. And, of course, the more people who do help, with that kind of thing, the more that the Python team can do to yeah. put stuff together. So, so it's, really it's, it's what we're saying is that it, you can contribute by making by making donations as well as contribute by writing code. Yeah, yes, and, and also I, I think the, the, there's a the piece of the puzzle in the middle is making a good, clear message, an ambiguous message about how to do that is, is the key, you know, having a very good or short PowerPoint presentation or something that would be easy for people to have. We could leave it with them, uh, CDs, that kind of, so which would be like marketing material. A bit longer than an elevator pitch, but something that you could give to a board in five or ten minutes. Yeah. Good That's idea. Exactly, yeah. Good idea. Okay. Thanks very much. So we're actually standing at the back of the Python Language Summit, and Michael Ford is now reconvening. So thanks for your time, and we'll speak okay. to you again later. Bye. So one of the interesting things, I mean, you probably know as, as Python Software Foundation chairman, one thing that exercises my mind a lot is, is how we can actually get more funding because I think it's important for the PSF to start trying to divert funds towards the development of the language as well as the, the many other worthwhile activities that we, we do fund. And I think that Tim had a very interesting take on that. I think that... Um, I know Tim happens to be fairly well connected with the banking and the pharmaceutical industries in the UK. And the point that, that to make the point to those industries that, that if you give money, it will be well used and that the Python language will improve as a result is a very interesting one. And I think one that we ought to be as a foundation supporting so that we can try to better support everyone who's trying to develop the Python language in their various ways. You're here, mm -hmm. but I'm biased. So. <laughs> I think most of the people here talking are biased. <laughs> I don't actually consider myself a developer, even though I have the commit bit, but I'm biased because I want the foundation to be 
uh, providing the wherewithal for, for development to continue, certainly. But at the same time, you know, how do you go and ask a company for money? What's what's the deal here? I mean, why why aren't we getting people turning up on our doorstep in huge numbers saying, please, please take this money and develop Python better? And how can we persuade them to? How can we actually interoperate with people who want particular developments to take place in Python without spoiling the open source scratch your own itch kind of environment well, that it's traditionally grown up in? Well, so, I mean, it's this is something I've thought long and hard about too, um, especially at PyCon where... Um, it's i was i was there was i was talking discussing this with people uh in the context of being kind of put up to a board of uh board of directors position for the PSF and thinking about this and also thinking about this as somebody who's worked at most multiple closed source proprietary companies who wants to you know divert money into the python software foundation more and more um this is kind of an interesting question too because it's a lot of these companies do have itches that they would like to see scratched. But then again, I don't think they understand what the PSF is. And if they were to invest that money, what they would get out of that, right? It's, it's actually easier and less stress for them to just hire on people and maybe give them a couple of hours a week to uh, scratch that itch and open source it. Or in most cases, from what I've seen, it's they hire on a Python hitman or contractor for lack of a better term to scratch their itch and they keep that itch nicely scratched inside internal for you know until the end of time so i think part of part of raising uh the money and part of getting companies to really see that there's value in donating the money to the psf is starting out small you know uh approaching some of the sponsors and saying hey listen is there something you want fixed um we're looking at sponsoring a couple of developers to go through either the bug queue or or improve this area or improve this domain yeah um allowing them to do basically targeted donations i don't want them to sit there and say well we want you to pay to do 2.x development until the end of time but rather more to the point of you know sponsoring somebody like mark dickinson to improve the exactly what we were just talking about for the financial industry improving the math uh, capabilities of Python in general. Um, but we have to start small and we have to, you know, really show them if you invest your money with us, this is what you're going to get out of it. Yep. Okay. Well, I mean, then it's certainly true that there, there was a sponsored sprint. Uh, now, oh, let me see, was it four years ago now, something like that? We had the need for speed sprint in, yep. in Iceland and that the primary sponsor of that event was a, a financial trading company. Yep. who did use Python extensively. And as far as I know, they did get some useful speed-ups out of the Python language. And I believe they're still working with um, Chris Tisma on uh, Psycho, which is a, a further speed-up thing. But yeah, I think the thing that surprised me about that sprint was how willing the developers were to accommodate the requirements of people who were basically prepared to put their money where their mouth was and say, well, look, we really do feel we need better performance in, in specific areas. And uh, I found that quite encouraging. And I, th and I think we just have to continue on that and kind of push that from a PSF bent. Um, one of the ideas I think I mentioned to you, Steve, was, and I wanted to propose to the board, is actually starting to sponsor, I mean, small amounts of money, but uh, basically uh, doing monthly sprints and basically going to people and say, listen, we want to hold a Python core or Python 
porting to three sprint one every month and we're going to give you like a couple of hundred dollars for pizza and beer or whatever you need and what we want to do is we want to give you money and we want to say get like 10 people in a room and just beat on the bugs and beat on the tracker or port apps to three and start you know putting this putting the seed in everyone's ear so that they start understanding what the psf is trying to do I think that would be a, a very good thing. As you observe, we do need to start small because funds aren't exactly coming out of, out of our ears at the moment. But um, I think if if people saw positive results, then companies might be more prepared to contribute to towards that. It's it's fundamentally a, it's a marketing problem. We have to start small, and we have to market the hell out of those small movements, right? We have to not only do we have to say put up in great big bold letters wherever we can the psf is holding you know sponsored sprints for x y and z you know we have to put in big bold letters right even if we're only doing a couple of hundred dollars right we're investing time to coordinate it to plan it to fund a little bit and then once once we get results we have to basically plaster those results as far and as wide as we humanly can because the point is is that a lot of the marketing a lot of the problem is fundamentally a marketing and communications problem and I think that that's something that's plaguing, you know, the PSF and Python to a certain extent in general. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, one of the one of the repeated discussions I've had with various people in the Python world is has been my attempt to get people to understand that marketing isn't actually a dirty word. Because no. some some people in the, in the in the programming world seem to regard it as as an activity that's that's fundamentally counter to what we're trying to do in the development of python but all marketing really is is trying to get people to understand your ideas in such a way that they will appreciate your needs and that you can fulfill some of their needs really i mean sure yes in in advertising terms it does get horribly abused sometimes and um there's a guy called seth godin i don't know whether any of you follow seth's postings but he's a a marketer who's very, very into the idea that the traditional forms of marketing, what he calls interruption marketing, are now going away. So the traditional form of marketing your product has been to spend huge amounts of money on things like television advertising, which basically interrupts people all the time. Uh, and he says that what we now need to move to is something he calls permission marketing, where basically you're you're marketing to the people who actually want to hear your messages. And I think if the, if the PSF can find a way to do that kind of marketing, it will actually be much more successful than if it tries to use a, a scattershot or broadcasting approach. Well, yeah. And it, it, go ahead, Brett. I was just going to say, I, I totally agree with Steve's point about needing the marketing. I think a real world aspect of this is, for instance, Python is used by like every Linux just, distribution out there and practically every linux distribution actually has like a kernel uh, linux kernel core developer on staff to act as like an in-house consultant but then basically just improve the general general usability and bugs of the kernel which is fantastic and it showed that it is totally acceptable and okay with the open source community to have someone on staff to work on open source but it's interesting when you look at python for instance where it has just as much use as linux in lots of places and yet, I honestly, beyond Guido getting 50% time at Google to work on high-level stuff that he wants, I don't know of any other core developer who's ever gotten paid specifically just to work on cleaning up the language or improving it. Now, we've been lucky enough that we've had Unlay and Swallow guys to work on performance, 
but I've never, I don't, honestly, I can't think of anyone and I could be wrong. That's been paid flat out just to fix bugs and just improve the language in general. I'm not sure that, that most of the employed Linux kernel developers actually can just work on general random stuff. Certainly there are Python core developers like Barry Warsaw at Canonical and Gustavo Niemeyer who have been working on Python-related tasks for their employer, or David Malcolm at Red Hat. I, I don't think Python is in that bad a situation, but and I don't think the Linux kernel is in necessarily that good a situation. It's just I think there are far more. Red Hat probably has a significant team of kernel people. Well, it's quite possible. I mean, it's definitely improving, right? Barry's pep work, which just happened, was on behalf of Canonical, and David Malcolm's work has just happened this past year. So it's definitely a new development. But, I mean, and hopefully it'll, it's a trend that will continue. Well, sure, and that takes us back to, to Tim Cooper's point of view, which is that in order to get some momentum behind this movement, perhaps what we really need to do is to develop a planned approach to where we can actually send someone to talk to a bank or a, a large corporate, another large corporation of some kind, and, and say, well, look, if, if you're a big Python user and if there are deficiencies in the language that you'd like to see overcome or if there are features in the language that you'd like to see added, then it is possible by donating funds to the Python Software Foundation to fund those developments. And as I say, the, the important thing is that we get the developers behind us in saying that that's an acceptable goal. Well, Problem. speaking as a core developer, I think it's totally acceptable. Sure. I mean, I would like to, to be able to fund sprints where, you know, every, say, every three or four months, we had a similar kind of sprint to the one that we have at PyCon, because PyCon, of course, being the the kind of the largest uh, Python conference and, and the one that attracts probably most international or rather most transatlantic uh, cooperation. PyCon gets the largest sprints, but that's only once a year. Now, I think it would be really good if we could put a sprint together maybe once a quarter or three times a year or even twice a year outside PyCon where where we could actually get a, a bunch, a significant number, maybe 12 or, or 18 core developers together uh, to try and move things forward more quickly and to, to make sure that things were more comprehensive and coherent in, in terms of development so that you know we didn't have these problems of putting features in late because the releases don't happen often enough and so on and so forth. This week's Python for Beginners, the very first, but something that we hope will become a regular feature, I thought that I would start out just by describing how to start making use of Python. So this is for real beginners, people who've never actually run Python from the command line. And the first suggestion I would make is whether you have a Windows system or a, a Unix or Linux machine, open up a command window and just type the word Python and see if anything happens. Because it's increasingly likely that when you buy a new computer system, Python is going to be installed on it. Uh, that's particularly the case in the Unix and Linux world, although there are still uh, a large number of Windows system vendors who don't appear to have caught on yet. I understand that Hewlett-Packard are using Python to configure their, um, their PCs, and so therefore it's very likely that an HP computer, albeit a Windows computer, will, will have Python on. But 
If you don't have Python on your Windows machine, the simplest thing to do is to go to www.python.org and on the home page, if you look down the left-hand side, you will see that there's a bunch of links and under quick links, uh, you'll see documentation and Windows installer. Now, if you click on that Windows installer link, you don't even need to store the installer and run it. As a Windows user, if your Windows user, sh it should ask you, do you want to run or, or save this file? And you can actually tell it to run the program. It will download the installer and you will have Python for Windows installed on your machine just like that. So it really is amazingly easy to install. I was giving a course... Uh, last week in um, Buffalo Grove in Illinois for a bunch of um, firmware programmers and, and they were actually amazed at how easy it was to get Python onto their laptops. Now, if you're not familiar with running programs from the command line, you need to go to a subsection of the python.org website. That would be uh, python.org slash doc, D-O-C, slash FAQ, F-A-Q, for frequently asked questions, slash Windows. And if you go there, there is uh, a bunch of frequently asked questions by Windows users that explain various things like how you can configure your Windows system so that when you do type Python into the command interpreter, then the Python interpreter runs and all that kind of stuff. Not only that, but if you go to that page, you will also see in the links down the side that Python has thought about you because it provides a beginner's guide link as well. And if you follow that uh, beginner's guide link, you'll find that there is information about starting to program. There's information about uh, various different versions of Python. There's information about books that you can read. There's information about tutorials. So there's a lot of information about, about Python available. The last piece of advice that I would give you is as a new user, once you've downloaded your installer and installed it, click on the documentation link that's just above the Windows installer. And the second link inside the body of that page should be a link to the Python tutorial. And that link to the Python tutorial actually takes you through a sequence of exercises, and if you do all those exercises, you won't be a completely uh, versed Python user, but you will know enough about Python to be able to ask sensible questions on forums like the Python list or the comp.lang.python news group as it is. So that's all I really have to say for you, beginners to Python, this issue, except to encourage you to give it a try. Python is easy. It's great to start. It's a fairly friendly community, despite having some jerks in it, as any community does. Um, and I would encourage you to get started as soon as you can. The sooner you start, the sooner you'll find out how great Python is. This has been a little bit of Python, episode 13. Please send your comments and suggestions to the email address all at bitofpython.com. Our theme is track 11 from the Headroom Project's album Haifa, available on the Magnatune label.
Thank you for listening to Hack Republic Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net, so head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.